if if we're gonna say in March, like Donald Trump is a threat to democracy, like you gotta try to urge people to address that threat while they can. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that because our conversation about this from last week generated some um some like backlash. Yeah, it did post. Um uh, Greenwald and- thinks we're warmongers. I don't know. <laughs> right. Hello, and welcome to Politics, the podcast. I'm Brian Boyler. I'm Matthew Iglesias. This week, Joe Biden took a flying leap into the general election uh, with a big speech commemorating the anniversary of January 6th and made some other high-profile remarks about Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election. We'll take a look at that. Uh, Then we'll take the case that Biden made against Trump and apply it to the question that we discussed last week, which was, should liberals try to help Nikki Haley win the Republican nomination? Or is that just something that, quote unquote, the worst Democratic Party hacks believe? Um, <laughs> that's you, finally, right? That, that's me. And I think I think Chris Hayes, too, mm. got, got tagged with worst Democratic Party hack label. Um, and then a politics first. We have a guest this week. We'll discuss the vibes theory of politics with Will Stansel. He's a, a metro policy researcher and a very spirited Twitterer, tweeter, Uh, (laughs) a tweeter, a tweeter who I think an Xer who I think um, maybe single handedly fixed economic sentiment by dunking on people who were saying false things about the economy. The dream. Um, But first, okay, so Matt, like, let's talk about Biden's speech. Uh, What did you think of it? Did it break any new ground? Was it good? So, I mean, I I should say, because I I, want to get out of like, the worst habits of political commentary. And the first order thing is like, I agreed with the content of the speech, which is not always the case. Um, you know, I, 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 I largely agree with Joe Biden and his policies, but he sometimes says stuff and I think, eh, I don't know. This speech, like, I thought it was correct. The events of January 6th, 2021 were outrageous. Um, Donald Trump's behavior on that day was outrageous. And in particular, his ongoing discourse about it, where he is talking about pardoning the people who committed these crimes, talking about how their political prisoners are hostages. Like, all that stuff is really bad. I I strongly agreed with the content of the speech. It was also great just to see Biden out there talking about something that he is fired up about. I mean, I think in a lot of ways... What you know, from a pure theater criticism standpoint, I don't think we see enough of Joe Biden. You know, I think that there was this line during the campaign about like a lower key presidency and how people would find that to be a relief. And that's true in theory, but like in practice, people want to see the president engaged in the news cycle. Biden hasn't done a lot of that. I think it makes him seem it, it makes him seem old when he's not Mm -hmm. present, when he's not out there in the cameras doing things. And he needs to talk about things that he can talk about passionately. Um, You know, and part of politics is like a little bit of fake it till you make it about your passion points. But, you know, whatever it is, like he was fired up. It's a good speech. Um, my, My doubt about it is that anytime I see something where like me and my peers are like, that was great, like, go get him. I I do just try to be reminded that me and my peers are very demographically distant from the different marginal electorates in the United States. And there's more than one kind of, like, 
marginal voter, but like my peers, college educated, middle-aged, affluentish city people. We're like, just like, we're not the Obama Trump swing voters. We're not the young disaffected people of color who like maybe won't vote, you know? And I just, I don't, I don't know that this kind of reiterating of the idea that Joe Biden stands for respectability and Trump wants to overthrow the government is like what moves the needle there. But I, but I, I, it was, it was the anniversary. So like, why not talk about it? And it was a good speech. Yeah. Well, so one thing that gives me solace about this point, like, is this the right content matter for Joe Biden to, to lean on, to rehabilitate his standing in the polls or, or hurt Trump standing is that the 2022 election, I think really did show that election denialism, threats to steal elections, et cetera, are are very unpopular. And they're specifically unpopular in a way that persuades registered Republicans to vote for Democrats. Mm -hmm. So I also just think as a general matter that like, I'm aware that I'm like um, a pointy headed um, intellectual relative to the median voter or whatever. Um, But I think that that means in effect that most of the reasons the January 6th stuff gets me revved up, gets me going, are like abstract. They're like, you know, they're rooted in the history of the Constitution and the importance of democracy. And some of these ideas maybe aren't quite so viscerally appealing to um, Obama Trump swing voters. Um, But I do think that there are other aspects of January 6th that are visceral and they will thus have kind of cross-cutting appeal. And Joe Biden, just by dint of going out there saying, like finally starting to like use Trump's name and accuse him of bad deeds and reminding people that those deeds were like violent and, and like got a, a cop killed and a bunch of cops injured and, you know, was a, an attempt to to steal power because he's a he's a, like a liar who lost the election and couldn't tell the truth about that. Like those things, I don't actually worry that they are they, that they lack broad appeal that they only appeal to intellectuals. Like they are reptilian brained. Yeah, and, and it's you know it's. I mean the, the 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 only the only real thing I would say about it is yeah you know so. Biden gave the speech on the anniversary where like, I think obviously that's what you want to talk about is a good issue for him. You, you know, in your piece said that that the speech was like a model, right, for engagement down the road. And there it's like, it's a good issue. I mean, I think the pardon issue in particular is a good one where this is like a classic wedge issue where like self-identified Republicans say by a large margin that they want to pardon these people. So if you talk about it, like Republicans will respond and say like, no, pardons are good, but it's incredibly unpopular with independents. Uh, people don't like, you know, like laxity um, on, on these riders. I do think that, you know, as the year goes on, you kind of have to, I talked about this a little bit and I don't think it's that hard, but I think they need to find a way to connect the like high-minded democracy speech to the like 
here's the Biden administration's policy somehow. That right now it's like very bifurcated, right? It's like now we're doing this like sanctified speech about the future of democracy. And then tomorrow, like Janet Yellen is going to go to a town in Pennsylvania and like talk about new manufacturing incentives, right? Like the, the fact that these rioters like beat up police officers is a good wedge point to talk about how like the murder rate soared when Donald Trump was president, how in four different budget submissions, Donald Trump wanted to cut police funding, you know, and it's not that like that is the key to the election or something, but it's that, you know, you, 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 you need to weave things together a little bit. Um, especially because in an odd way, I think the democracy issue works better down ballot than it does at the top. Um, because if Trump wins, he's not going to overturn the election. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? No. Yeah, yeah, no, but you know what I mean? It's like, you're, you're, you're trying to alarm people, right? About like, what are the bad things that will happen if Trump wins the election? Right. And, and so it's like, you need something to say, right? It works in a weird way as an argument against Herschel Walker. That like, <laughs> if he wins the election, he might vote to overturn election results, right? A- anyway, I mean, I don't want to be like too well, literal about it. I mean, it's. I'm glad you said that because we are like witnessing this week that like Republican leaders are adopting Donald Trump's language that the January 6th prisoners, the, the felons are hostages, right? Yeah, so Stefanik like, said that. It's a great argument but, against her. Yeah, well, no, but she's in the leadership and she is saying that Yeah. as a leader, we won't commit to doing the certification of the election as the Constitution requires us to. So you have this, it turns into a big argument, not just about Trump, but about who controls the House and the Senate and so on. Um, you know, and I I think that it is canon in the Democratic Party at this point that the democracy stuff has to be um, like threaded together or there needs to be connective tissue with with policy issues and like, um, I, I, I have doubts as to whether it's necessary. I have no, I I have no, I have no problem with it as a, as an approach, just as long as like what you said is, I think really simple connective tissue. Republicans claim to, you know, back the blue, but it turns out they got a bunch of cops beat up and are calling the people who beat up the cops, uh, hostages and heroes and martyrs. Um, and, and like, as it turns out, like the democratic party has overseen a decrease in violent crime. That's pretty tidy. It, it, it's not so tidy to like, I I saw Nancy Pelosi on one of the TV shows this week and she was like, authoritarianism is bad for wallets. And it's like, probably, you know, I mean, at, at some point, if, the rule of law breaks down in this country, the economy will go with it. Maybe not right away. I, but in any case, it sounds ridiculous. Like, like the, yeah, well, the, I, the, I, the I, reason I, Trump disqualified himself by trying to steal the election is not that he wanted the power to hurt people's pocketbooks. It was that he wanted to upend the United States of America. And like that, I think, is a perfectly solid appeal on its own terms. And then also this, like it reveals where... that, the, 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 that the rest of the stuff is... Okay, but okay, so I, I want to do a little c- connection, right? Because so if Biden had to run against Nikki Haley, right, he would run a campaign that is focused, I think, on sort of traditional 
populist Democratic Party ideas, right? That like he stands for the people and she stands for the powerful, that he wants to protect Social Security and Medicare, that she wants to do these terrible tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you run against Trump, you you run a different campaign from mm-hmm. the campaign you would run against Haley, I think obviously. But I think that you don't want to run a 180 degree different campaign because Nikki Haley is going to support Trump when she loses, right? And there's a reason why all these Republicans support Trump, right? Like there's there's the pure grifters and opportunists, right? But there's the Chris Sununus of the world. There's all these people who are like, let's not nominate Trump. Trump is bad. And then when Trump wins, they're going to be like, fuck yeah, Trump, right? The reason those people support Trump is the reasons that Biden would give that they are bad, right? That, that if, if Trump wasn't there, Joe Biden wouldn't be a Republican, I assume. He was, uh, as is well known, he's actually been around for a long time, not being a Republican. You know, and he'll sometimes say this stuff about it, like, this is not your father's Republican Party, which like I agree with. But like, Biden was opposed to your father's Republican Party, right? And I just like, I, I don't think it's... You have to like say both of those things. You know what I mean? I, look, it's, it is a and, big, and like and like and like make a, it's it's a long campaign. Yes, but it's a big long campaign. But what I don't think you want to do is like silo those criticisms. No, you know, no. you you just like a lot of um. Anyway, I I mean, I, I but I but I thought it was good, and, and you know, and I think the speech also connects to why I feel increasingly. That like the the push to try to urge people to do crossover votes for Haley is good, be because Biden's speech was correct. You know what I mean? That like you you have to sort of gut check yourself at some point and be like, is this just a line that I think is a good line against Trump, or do I believe in it? And I feel more strongly that what Biden said in that speech is true than I do that it was a good political message. You know, I'm like I'm like. 70% it's a good message and 99% it's true. And because it's true, even though like I think there's a lot of problems with Nikki Haley as a politician, like it would be way better for the country if she were the Republican nominee and you have to like not overthink that. Is is where it I, comes down to. Like if if we're going to say in March, like Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. Like you got to try to urge people to address that threat while they can. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that because our conversation about this from last week generated some, um, some like backlash. Yeah, I did post. <laughs> um, uh, Clint Greenwald and... thinks we're warmongers. I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, so like we're a week out from Iowa and I guess two weeks out from New Hampshire and the polls are kind of all over the place in um, in New Hampshire. Like, but one at least showed Haley in striking distance of Trump in New Hampshire, which I think clearly just underscores the power of the politics podcast. Um, yes. But um, but Glenn Greenwald um, in his like famously understated way called this idea that because there's some small chance that Nikki Haley could gain some momentum. The liberals should try to stop Trump by supporting Haley in open um, primaries. He he called this like the brainchild of Democratic Party hacks. And I mean, he did this without what, what I found like a little annoying about it is that he did this without ever saying whether he prefers Trump to Biden. 
Um, right. I, but like what he's definitely saying, I think, is that he thinks that Trump is better than Nikki Haley and specifically because her her at least stated views on foreign affairs and national security and so on are more hawkish than Donald Trump, who like anti anti Trump people like to point out, like didn't start a new war in his four years. Um, and well, I, in particular, right. I mean, Haley is a traditional Republican Russia hawk and yeah. Glenn Greenwald, um, uh, to put it generously, <laughs> he is not <laughs> Glenn. Glenn is not that Glenn thinks that Trump's, uh, softer approach to Putin is good and is a compelling reason to prefer him to Haley and probably to prefer him to Biden. I guess my main reaction to like that outburst from Greenwald, right? Is that like, if we were doing the opposite, right? If there was a surge of Haley in the polls and you and me and Chris Hayes and whoever else were doing pivoting to takes about how terrible Haley is, Glenn, who hates mainstream liberal pundits and Democratic Party politicians, he would be saying, these guys cried and screamed for years about Trump's threat to democracy, but now they're pivoting and saying Haley is just as bad. What a bunch of full of shit hypocrites, right? And I I, I think that criticism like would be correct. Like I, as I said yesterday, like I think it's very unlikely. But like in the unlikely scenario where Haley does start to get momentum and it looks like she might beat Trump, there's going to be a real moment of panic among Democrats who think she's a stronger candidate and who still want her to lose. And I think that some clownish and hypocritical things will be said in that Mm -hmm. event. Um, And that's like that just is why fundamentally, like, I think it's important to put cards on the table here. Like to Glenn, the most important thing in the world is that the politician be um, dovish on Russia and have an antagonistic relationship to America's intelligence agencies. And that means he he likes Donald Trump. Um, to me, I think the critique of Trump as a threat to democracy is like serious and real. And uh, presidents come and go. You're not going to win every election. You can't just say every four years, this is the end of democracy if we lose. You know, I'm like, I just, I I won't say, I pre-commit. I will not say that about Nikki Haley. I will criticize her views on taxes and social security and, and other things like that. But that is what I think about Trump. So, I mean, there's a mischievous, I, like, if there's mischief in my view that, like, liberals should support Haley where they can, it's two things. One is that, like, I actually, you know, I don't know what the polls say about a Biden Haley head to head, but I don't think that just because she's younger and like a sort of clearer speaker than either Biden or Trump, that makes her, (laughs) you know, like she has been all over the place on Trump. And like, it's not just what you said that, that Biden would, would adopt it. Like I'm for the working man. She's for the, the, the man style campaign. He would also point out that she was an avid Trump supporter before, or she was an avid Trump opponent, then supporter, then opponent, and then supporter again. Right. Um, And I also think that there's some chance that Donald Trump, if denied the nomination for any reason where like Nikki Haley beat him. uh, Sure, could blow up the whole thing. could blow up the whole thing. Okay, so like, so like I, I, there is like a political calculus to it, but I'm, I just don't know like what would happen. So in, in the, like, given the, the, I think reasonable, uh, like rule of thumb that like either 
Haley or Trump will have a 50-50 chance to become president if they get the nomination, that Haley should would be a better option than Trump because she's less dangerous to the United States and the world, right? And I, as like easy as it is to get annoyed by imagining Glenn calling us hypocrites for taking the other view, I, I do want to just like give the most generous possible interpretation to his remarks and like ask, is it, do we really think that Nikki Haley um, and Donald Trump are so different about um, about war and um, and national security that Trump is just a much safer bet if your main thing is is like in the in the years 2025 through 2029 we don't want the United States in wars. But so I mean, um, th- this is where I would just say like my, my views of this landscape have changed a lot in the past um how how long have we been talking about donald trump nonstop? like six or seven years now right so you know i I, when this was an argument about trump and marco rubio in 2015 i basically agreed with the with the green wall take i thought that rubio was pushing very dangerous um national security policy that had worse long tail kind of um, risks than people were giving him credit for, frankly. Um, You know, what has changed to me is that we saw under Trump the third in a row, right, effort to sort of rebuild the U.S.-Russia relationship. People forget, but like Bush tried this, Obama tried it, and then Trump tried it. And it kept not working. You know, and and the Russian government shows, I think, very clearly that it favors a path of kind of alliance with China and hostility toward um, the the West. And like, I, I have just like switched my opinions on this, um, which I which I know, I I feel like Glenn construes people changing their minds in response to events as like evidence of. Uh, hypocrisy or bad motive or something like that. Uh, but like, it, it made a big difference to me. I was I was surprised by the invasion of Ukraine. Like, I didn't think that would happen. Um, but, it, but it did. And like, I now have a different opinion about this than I used to. And I just like, don't agree that Trump's yeah. approach to this is better when i i did in 2015 like i thought his approach was was better um but i think that was wrong so like on the question of like empire or whatever as opposed to like war per se i think that's where my views like were once like like what six seven years ago more in line with glenn's um about like the the impact of donald trump or of, of the united states on the on the world and like would the world be better off if the united states receded a bit um and i used to think yes um and then donald trump came into power and kind of did it um but he did that he did it in a like ill-considered corrupt kind of way that brought him into alliance with a bunch of nefarious international actors and they filled the void and i don't think that's better than what predated Trump. So on those grounds, I like have like kind of changed my analytical bent on like, uh, like, um, like whether 
liberal leaders or like, um, you know, Pat Buchanan-esque America First type leaders are safer for the world. I don't know that if like Nikki Haley had been president from uh, 2016 through 2020, that she would have started a war where Donald Trump didn't. I know that Donald Trump like escalated um, drone strikes a lot. Well, also, you know, and and like he didn't end the war in Afghanistan. Like that was Biden, which is why I kind of think this is a sort of trivial conversation. Like there was a war that the U.S. was involved in and Biden ended it. Trump didn't. The the other thing, I, 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 I think the like peaceniks for Trump forget about is that the Obama administration had this nuclear agreement with Iran in place, right? That was controversial in partisan politics and controversial with the government of Israel, controversial with the Emiratis and and the Saudis, et cetera. Trump took office. And we know, obviously, Trump has a lot of sway over the conservative base, right? If Trump had said in the spirit of peacenickery and anti-imperialism, like, we're going to stick with this Obama nuclear deal, that would have been an incredibly powerful gesture for regional politics and for regional peace, right? Trump did the opposite of that. He tore the peace deal up, but he didn't say like, and I'm just fine with America not being involved in, in the region, right? He he tore up the nuclear deal with Iran. He stepped up sanctions on them. He brought the United States closer to Iran and to and, and to the Saudis. He kept American troops all over Iraq, Syria, um, and he set the stage for this incredible regional conflict that we're, we're now seeing, you know, Israel at war in Gaza, but this much broader set of regional chaos that Trump unleashed, right? And he unleashed that not because he's a foreign policy hawk, but because like he's not good at government. You know, he doesn't do things for reasons, right? So it's like he his son-in-law is an Orthodox Jew who's close to the Israeli right, and he's like taking bribes from Gulf interests, and APAC wants him to be mean to Iran. He doesn't seem to understand that like Iran and Russia are allies, and you can't have a policy that's like, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, th- there's a lot of different approaches you can take to the fact that they are out, but like, he, he was like, he was a really bad president in a way yeah. that I think, well, I think in, a, in an odd way is like underrated amidst all the like Trump discourse, like nothing he tried to do worked. Um, and, and like, he spent all of January and February, 2020, like, trying to like score this like soybean sale to China. And like, it's bizarre. And I don't, people want to, to simultaneously say like he was right to get tough on China or he was like right to be like less hawkish or something. But is, is that what he was doing? Like, I, yeah. So, so, I mean, I, 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 I just want to like close on this one point and then we should get to Will. Is that like, if you think that Donald Trump through like, incompetence or maladministration or whatever you want to call how he like kind of stomped around in foreign policy in the way you're describing. If you want to stipulate that that makes it, I don't know, 10%, 20% less likely that president Trump 2.0 would be like, would get us into war over Nikki Haley, who's maybe 20% more likely to, I think it's actually like reasonable to say, okay, that's like, that's actually like a, a pretty strong like point in, in, in Trump's favor, if you're looking at the contest between just the two of them. 
But it's what you said. It's that like there's there's like more ways to get people killed than just war. And Trump, through the same kind of incompetence and maladministration, like got a, like a, a a surplus of two hundred or something thousand Americans killed because of because of his like inability. To, and I like honestly think that Nikki Haley would have managed that crucial period in what, like January, February, 2020 better and saved some lives. Like I, and you can't abstract that out of the calculation. Yeah. I mean, I just, I do, you know, to like come back to the, the speech, et cetera. It's like, I, what I do want, like everyone in the Democratic Party to remember is that they would run a vigorous campaign against Nikki Haley. They would raise all these kinds of objections to her and they should keep those objections in mind as they run against Trump and like not treat Trump. You know, I don't want to say like, don't treat Trump as abnormal because he does all these abnormal things, but it's not, you know, light years away. I feel like as Trump won the nomination in 2016, it was like the Democratic Party just like half forgot everything they used to know about just like routine politics and how they would connect to voters and how they would motivate people. And they pivoted off in like all kinds of different weird directions in response to it. There was like one school of thought that was like, Trump won and we didn't think he should win. So we should be socialists. Or one thought was like, Trump is racist. So we should like go into odd academic texts and and, and talk about this in like a weird way and just you know trump is trump's policy ideas are not that different from those of any other republican and whatever reasons you would give that like mike pence is bad or nikki haley is bad or um, whoever else like you you, you got to you, you you you, you got and you got to roll it together because mm-hmm. it would be nice if all these republicans like walked away from trump right if they were all like you're right january 6 was unforgivable we're supporting biden but like we know that's not going to happen right so like engage empathetically mm-hmm. right like if you're mike pence like donald trump tried to have you murdered but like Pence is going to support Trump. So like, why is that? Right? It's not really because because what I keep hearing people say, which I think is really wrong. And I remember this going back to like Paul Ryan. So be like, oh, they're cowards. Right? But I don't think they're cowards. It, it doesn't require courage exactly to just kind of like cross the aisle. It requires you to attenuate your support for like banning abortion and cutting taxes. Uh, but like Mike Pence really believes in that. He spent his whole life. He, he believes in the Trump policy agenda more deeply than Trump does. And so that's why he wants Biden to lose. And you need to like say something about how that how that connects to other people and, and the world. Not necessarily, you know, you can go to Mother Emanuel in South Carolina and give like a very high tone speech, but you have to get like bring some of that juice to like regular stuff. All right, let's uh let's take a pause for a second, let Will in and then we'll talk about vibes. Will Stansel, welcome to the Politics Podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Okay, so let's just start with a like a couple foundational issues to get listeners like square on what we're talking about. Give us your nickel summary of vibes in politics. You've written about it, so I I think you can probably just riff on it. Um, and and then tell us a little bit, bit about how the mismatch between 
public economic sentiment and macroeconomic data map onto your theory of vibes in politics? That's a pretty big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> two questions. No, yes, yes, two questions. Uh, no, I mean, I would say that basically, I think that that uh, a lot of stuff in politics is driven by um, these sort of sort of social dynamics that aren't really directly. Uh, uh, you can't directly link to some sort of fundamental uh, uh, metric on the ground. So you know, there's this idea out there that if you just look at for instance, you know, gas prices is sort of sort of the paradigmatic example. Uh, you look at gas prices, you can just trace, you know, back from that to what presidential approval will be. Um, or you can look at, you know, wages or inflation or employment or whatever. Um, and in my uh, view is that that uh, that doesn't you know, really accurately uh, uh, describe why why the public forms certain political views, why the public votes for certain candidates, how elections turn out and the like. Um, so that's the like 30 second summary of what vibes are. Vibes is just a catch all for for this idea that there's there's sort of the social layer to politics that that, you know, you can't really put into a regression model and just figure out, um, you know, that's this idea that, that uh, I've been sort of kicking around for a few years now. Um, I think in the last year, last six months, uh, it's really become a, a more urgent idea because we're in this really weird situation where the economy, by pretty much any metric you can think of, is somewhere between strong to exceptionally strong. Um, I think the the assumption of going into you know this year would have been that if that were the case, Biden be really popular, people are really happy about it. But instead, you have the opposite situation where uh, pretty much any poll you look at shows that people are not just you know mixed about the economy; they're miserable. They think the economy's terrible. They think it's as bad as two thousand nine, the depths of the Great Recession. And, um, you know, this is so this has become this has gone from kind of a theoretical, you know, uh, 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 idea about vibes is something that is a lot of practical urgency in politics since uh, there's a pretty good chance Biden loses reelection because of it. So, you know, I, I think there's a there's a version of this I agree with and a version I don't agree with. But I think what's interesting that you've been dealing with lately is, you know, you, you always see. A Democrat becomes president, Republicans like start saying everything's terrible. And you have Republican Party politicians, conservative talking heads, and they're like, oh, everything's terrible. And we and like that's partisanship, right? And it matters. And conservative media matters, all those things. You've been tangling a lot, though, now with people on the left, right? And and I think that that, that to me is what like turns this into a a convincing story about Biden is that he's taking this like bi-directional fire in a way that's unusual. Like I didn't hear anybody during Trump's presidency saying like, actually the economy is awful because we haven't gone back to Coolidge levels of the welfare state, right? Like conservatives, as far as I know, like think that the expansion of big government in the new deal and the great society was bad but like when a Republican was president, they were just like, he's more conservative than the other guys. We're fucking thrilled. And I don't think like like progressive people don't have that attitude toward Biden, right? They have their just like critique of American political economy and they want to keep offering. Yeah. So I think I think that that is and isn't new. Um, one of the things so one of the things you really have seen. So we've known for a long time 
that, for instance, that 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 Repub the way the Republicans see the economy just flips basically based on who's president. It's actually true of Democrats too, but it's much more it's much more pronounced with Republicans. Uh, you know, so a Republican becomes president, suddenly every Republican thinks that the economy is amazing, and then literally the day Trump you know leaves office, every single Republican thinks we're in a depression. Um, and so we've known about this for a long time. But what's been sort of interesting about this is that people haven't really taken into a, you know, haven't really thought through the implications of this. Um, there's sort of this idea, OK, that's how Republicans are. But by and large, the way the public is going to react to something, especially the economy, especially this is sort of this, you know, we regard this as something we experience day to day. The way the, Repub the, way the public is going to react is going to re reflect you know, the real economy on the ground is going to reflect the real indicators. And so, so yeah, the Republicans are crazy, but that's just them. And at the end of the day, what really matters is, is, are these real conditions? And I don't really know why we've ever made this assumption. I mean, the Republicans seem like pretty good proof of concept that the public is capable of holding false beliefs about something about the economy or, you know, really anything else. Um, <laughs> But I, I think that, that what we're seeing now is that, you know, we were wrong to make that assumption that groups outside the Republican Party are also perfectly capable of, of holding these sort of false of views. And so, as you say, I mean, one of the things that's notable now is that you see. Um, so, of course, Republicans hate the economy. Independents largely hate the economy because independents are just sort of in most polling is just you know, sort of the average of Republicans and, and Democrats. And then there's this sort of left-wing faction of Democrats that also hates the economy for reasons that they claim are different than the Republicans hating it, but in practice sound basically the same. They say it's prices are too high, prices are too high. Um, and so you have um, you have this sort of total breakdown of the link between uh, public sentiment and, and what, as far as we can tell, the sort of you know hard objective reality on the ground. So I want to actually take Matt's point about conservatives being sort of better partisans than many people on the left, seriously, and kind of inverted in a, in, a, in a thought experiment. Like, what if it was the case that conservatives act more like left-wingers or progressives and, and the left in general in the United States acts more like the conservatives do? Like, if, if when Trump was president, the Democrats and leftists alike were would respond to him saying this is the greatest economy ever by saying he's lying, it's actually terrible out there. It's almost as bad as the Great Depression. Um, and then a bunch of right-wing activists said, yes, it's very bad out there on account of, you know, there's too much Medicare. Um, would public sentiment during Trump's presidency about the economy have fallen out of whack with the macroeconomic indicators? And I mean, I, I think the answer is yes. And if the yeah, answer I mean, as far is as yes, tell, if, it yes. Apply, if it applies no matter how you do it, we just happen to inhabit a system where left-wingers behave differently from right-wingers, um, then I think it's like it, – it suggests that public opinion really is a, a question of like, like what are – what are like people with big megaphones kind of saying about it rather than like well, – like, but I mean, I, I mean, at, I, at some level, like I, you can't, you can't I, I do want to say though, that like what the people with the megaphones say is in part a function of reality. I mean, people, people, the, the reason that you know there there are some people like TikTok grifters and and you know people who are saying things just like for no good reason, but like when when Warren Gunnels says that like Biden should be campaigning like FDR. 
Right. Warren Gunnels, and, real and, quick, just for, for people listening, Warren Gunnels is like a is or was a senior policy advisor to is, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, okay. to Bernie Sanders. He's he's one of Bernie's okay. That reflects, you know, it, you you can nitpick the like precise text of Gunnels's tweets about how terrible America is and how sixty three percent of workers are unable to pay a five hundred dollar emergency, whatever. But it's like Bernie has this vision of how society ought to be. Right, this like comprehensive Nordic social model, and the United States of America, like, actually is very far from that Bernie ideal, and he wants to articulate that idea, right? And like, I think that this it does it generates bad vibes when the leading figures in progressive politics all want to talk about how terrible America is, but like, that's not. It's not totally detached from circumstances. It's like one reason that like I feel very comfortable being like a good vibes guy under Biden is that like I'm just not as progressive as these people. So like it seems fine to me. Like unemployment's low, gas prices went up a lot. That was annoying, but like now they're back down. Some people got some cheaper prescription drugs. Like I'm like, I'm thrilled to cheerlead for this like meliorist, you know, we built back like a little bit better than it was before. But like, it's just true that if you want a dramatic transformation of American politics and society, that like Joe Biden hasn't done that. And I don't, I I mean, I I guess like my preferred solution would be for leftists to become less left wing, but they're probably not going to do that. But one of the things I I think is, you know, you hear this, I and mean, this this is this is sort of the strongest case for you know, why why are left wingers yeah. you know, so mad about the economy? Well, they want to transform the economy. Biden hasn't really transformed the economy; he's just made it a lot stronger. It's become stronger. Um, uh, the problem with this is that, yeah, sure, you know, you could argue that Warren Gunnell says it. Um, you know, I, Matt Brunig on Twitter says this frequently. This is not what you hear from sort of people, rank and file people who identify as left wing. This is not, the people right. don't say, what, the, what you hear is that big night prices are too high. Prices are too high. Gas prices are too high. There are no jobs, which is just, which is just straightforwardly false. <laughs> and if you sort of go down into the depths of TikTok, which, which, you know, I know is, we, we have a tendency to regard as irrelevant in so much noise, but this is what a lot of people are consuming. This is where people are getting their information. You know, you see things like, we're in a second Great Depression. I mean, that's just not true. That's just, that's insane. And, yeah, yeah. And, and this, so, so, you know, there's sort of this disconnect where you have this sort of, you know, high-minded case for, you know, why lefties would be disappointed, but that case is always true. That case would have been true at any point in the last hundred years. And yet, if you go back four years, people were pretty happy about the economy which looked pretty much like ours does today. And so the Big Macs were so cheap. Because the Big Macs. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, right. I I just, I, I, I I just like, what I'm trying to say though, is that the, I I think the like high-minded and low-minded versions of this relate. Like I was just like reading some, some, some Vox headlines, you know, over the years. Right. And it's like the coronavirus pandemic childcare crisis in 11 numbers, um, a program that saved childcare for millions is expiring. The childcare crisis just keeps getting worse. Fixing the childcare crisis starts with understanding it. Right. And this is reflects not like liars 
or like scumbags or the most far left. This is a mainstream liberal advocacy groups. The way they talk about things, like their whole theory of politics is like, if I want to change childcare policy in the United States, I should assemble some facts about the childcare situation. I should accentuate the negative. I should label it crisis Right. And so like you and I, right, like we both like to talk about housing, right? And like housing policy and like make it better, et cetera. I've noticed that it's like the only way you can you are like supposed to articulate the idea that housing policy could be made better is to talk all the time about how there's a housing crisis. And I actually can like, say that well, go on. <laughs> I, I just it always strikes me as like in some ways like the opposite of a crisis. It's like what we have is like the long-standing accumulation of structural conditions that have been fairly constant over a period of What's interesting of about the yeah. crisis thing is that you know, so this is this is what I study in my day job, which I don't talk no, about. They, no, I know. That's, that's that's that's. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. This is my my bait and switch. <laughs> <laughs> and what I'm going to be so have nothing to contribute, but go on. <laughs> well, no. Well, what's interesting about this? You know, I've gone and read a lot of. I've gone through the archives and read historical, you know, newspapers going back to you know 1985 about housing policy here, especially here in the Twin Cities where I live. Yeah. And it's like almost a running joke. I mean, you know, we've, I've written about this in academic articles where every single year there's a housing crisis and every single <laughs> year it's getting worse. Right. And, you know, and it's clear after a while, after you read, you know, the, the 10th consecutive year of there being a housing crisis on the brink of disaster, that this, you know, yes, there are problems, but that this pitch is being selected for its I mean, vir- virality before that term meant anything. Um, not because it is a particularly, uh, uh, you know, balanced view of the situation. Now, I think that some of the, you know, with that said, I mean, things do get better and worse. And you can argue right now that a lot of the housing trends are worse than they were in the past. There's just less housing. Um, it's more expensive or not less housing, but there's less housing available for cheaper. Yeah. More Um, scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. More scarcity. But, but I, I think that, I think that, that, you know, yes, I mean, it's definitely true that, that, you know, one of the ways that, Liberals and progressives have progressives have learned learned to frame everything as as a crisis, and and that has a role in policy advocacy. I think, frankly, though, that was true. As I said, this you know you could find this in 1990s, you could find this in the 2000s. Um, the the this this mismatch we're seeing, this this sort of strange thing where people are just un, inordinately pessimistic, is not a not a long running trend. You can you can right. you know as best as we can tell, this starts. Pretty specifically, either in 2020 or 2021, um, you can, you know, it's a little fuzzy exactly when it starts, but there is there is a clear divergence that happens at that point. And so there's something different happening now, as, as far as we can tell. Um, and so whatever, whatever, you know, sort of liberal rhetorical ticks have grown up, uh, they, something is different, you know, either. But I think that it, I think that one of the main things that's different is the growing influence of progressives in American society and in the Democratic Party that, you know, that when, even when Obama was president, right, like progressive, this uh, progressive advocacy groups were like very much on the outside looking in. And sometimes it's weird because it's like, if you say in a celebratory way, like Steve Clemens touting an event, uh, was talking today. He said, Joe Biden's economic policy evolution, sorting out the North Star of Bidenomics that's been substantially influenced by Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and AOC, right? And so as long as you're like pumping up 
these like progressive figures. They're like happy to talk about how they have more clout than they ever had before in America. They have more access to the media. They have more prominence. But I, like I was asking someone who was fairly senior in the Biden administration, but definitely on the progressive wing of the Biden administration. I was like, don't you think it's like making your political problems so much worse that like all progressive advocacy groups talk about all the time is how terrible everything is. And he was like, no, they're just correct. And I was like, well, (laughs) what the fuck? It's like, you know, but I mean, that it's just like, but it, it is true that Joe Biden has not created a, a Nordic welfare state. And it's like, but the people who think that, and like Bill Clinton, I think. I mean, I was I was little. I was a kid when Clinton was president. But I, I I think I think I have this right. He was to the left of the Republican Party, but he did not stand for the wholesale transformation of American society into like a different kind of country. But the more that people who want that like come into power, right? Like we're 10 years away from human extinction due to climate change. It's then hard to turn around and tell people to be like, you got to be more upbeat because the, the TikTok teens, you know, are too sad. So I think, I think what, what I, 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 I think this, there's this tendency to trace this political phenomenon of, of pessimism to political agents to, yeah. to, you know, Oh, well, you know, they, who in our political system, which groups are causing this? I, I don't know if that's necessarily, if I think that's, you know, necessarily the case, if that is, you know, I, my tendency is to think that, that one of the things that's playing a role here is that is not necessarily choices by political actors, but it's that the mediums in which these messages are conveyed are incre- I've changed over time. That you're seeing less reliance on legacy media. The legacy media outlets are closing down. You're seeing more reliance on social media. And the incentives for messaging in these new spaces are different. That you have, you know, one of the things, I mean, and I know this from experience. If you, you know, if you want something to spread on Twitter, the best way to do it is to frame it as the worst thing that's ever happened. Uh Um, No one's going to stop you from doing that. You're going to go super viral a bunch. A lot of people have gotten really good at doing this. Um, And that that sort of audience capture incentive where you, you know, where you, what do you, what do I say in order to get attention is a kind of a new development, not entirely new development, but it, it's at least gotten stronger with the, the advent of more social media. And, and that shapes the kinds of messages that people produce. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think that I wouldn't want to immediately rush to, to attributing this to the choices of political uh, actors and groups. I would say, you know, there's sort of these larger changes in the structure of how we communicate in society um, and, and, you know, maybe it's coming out of that some. Okay. I, here's the question. I, uh, a question I think we're dancing around a little bit. Um, because, you know, I think that Matt's hypothesis that maybe the, the, um, the like, uh, collapse in the relationship between sentiment and macro data happened is, has something to do with the recent phenomenon of increasing progressive power. And then there's a separate, and I think not mutually exclusive theory that you're articulating, which is about the the revolution and how people exchange media and, and how where they get their information from. Um, if either of those things or both of them are true, like what do you what what can you do about it? Because like let's stipulate like Matt Brunig is a is a socialist and like his reasons for 
like not being happy about the United States political economy are like, I believe, deeply held. And thus, when he sees things that are nonsense on Twitter about DoorDash or hamburger prices, he's not really incentivized to be like, actually, that's just false. And similarly, less left-wing people, but still progressives who work at advocacy organizations, when they see young left-wing people making erroneous claims about climate change or whatever, they're not incentivized to say, actually, they're wrong about this. And if we agree that this problem could, in theory, be fixed by making it so that progressive people and progressive advocates acted like conservative activists and just talked about everything was great the moment a Democrat came into power. We don't have that. So A, does that mean that like the broad left, center to left, is like behind the eight, like can't really do things that would make the vibes better? Um, or like, is it possible to, um, to like, awaken people to how these dynamics are working so that they'll be like more mindful. Like, Will, you, I think you recently emphasized this idea that like political beliefs are more of a, like, like a product of group consensus than individual reasoning. Um, and that if you change it, like changing minds requires kind of barging in and, uh, and like busting up consensus within those communities. Like, arguing people. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, have you seen this in action at all with this? You're like, yes, I think insistent. I have a little bit. Um, and, does it, does it like, do you think that it is possible to make headway in any other way other than just like slugging it out like that? So I think that there's a few implications here, um, as I see it. One is that if people's opinions are not grounded in real conditions, I mean, the, the, the thing that everyone immediately runs to is like, well, make, make conditions on the ground better and then people will be happier. And what we're seeing is that people's opinions aren't really linked to those. So you're just kind of pulling a lever that isn't hooked up to anything. Um, and, and so first, you really have to sort of disabuse yourself of the idea that you can fix this by altering conditions on the ground by changing policy. It just may do nothing. And and so you're kind of wasting your time with that. And it's just really hard, I think, for progressives and liberals who are very policy oriented to think that way because we really want to think that policy matters in politics. And if it, if it doesn't, it's, you know, it kind of goes right to some of our core beliefs. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that a lot of this is just social dynamics. I mean... Uh, yes, there may be, it may be that negativity is more viral. It may be that negativity is a, you know, progressives have discovered this is a better way to make a policy case. But also there are just, there are just ways of talking to develop within groups. And so, you know, there's kind of a norm within a lot of, of, uh, you know, sort of progressive leaning liberal democratic circles where you, where, you, you know, if you talk about, for instance, one of the things I've run into is if you say the economy is good, then people go, you know, people jump on you and say, but what about all the people who are still poor, which like a hundred percent is something we should be worried about. But, but it's also in some ways almost like a tick that people have learned. This is how you respond to that particular point. And I think that you have to sort of change the social norms in that way. I think that this is, this, there's no formula for this. It's just, it's like any other social norm. It's just sort of constant reinforcement over time is constant, you know, so, so for instance, one, one of the things when this all started about six months ago, when I really started just kind of like, like slugging it out with people day in, day out about the economy, um, it was really the most common response is I'd say the economy is good. And you get a thousand people saying, no, it's not. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. Um, what has happened over time as this, as this has progressed and as, as we slugged it out with, you know, and then other people came in and slugged it out with these people for, for, you know, six months is that 
these sort of counter arguments about wages and about employment, et cetera, have become have sort of percolated through the social, you know, this sort of social network. And now when someone now when someone comes in and says the economy is secretly terrible or the economy is terrible, you know, lots of people jump up and say, oh, no, it's not for these reasons. And they sort of make the argument for you. It's like it's, it's like the, the there's been sort of this like group learning process where people have have figured it out. And it's not you know, again, there's no formula for making this happen other than just sort of like like have, winning the debate over time. I, I, I really agree with there where you ended. Right. Like this point about contentiousness, I think is super important. I think one of the worst things that happened in left of center politics over the past 10 years is that so many people got into the view that you should essentially never punch left in an argument. So that as long as a complaint was framed as like on behalf of the poor or those who lack healthcare or something like that, it's like people didn't want to contest it at all. Um, and that I think helped contribute to these kind of like, like doomer norms. I, I do want to say in terms of reality, right? That like one, one risk that always happens is that you start arguing against the doomers and you start like familiarizing yourself with positivity content and you can, you know, incept yourself into an exaggeratedly rosy view of things. This this cap just put out this good report on January 3rd showing that for most workers um wages are rising faster than prices. Um you know, they're they're trying to improve the vibes. But if you look at the chart that they have, um that starts being true in July of 2023 and it was true, you know, all through 2023 since since July. Um but on that same chart like all during, there was an 18-month span in which that wasn't true, and prices were rising faster than, than wages for most people. And so it's not like totally incomprehensible to me how gloomy views started to become entrenched then. I think that like real improvements in conditions are, for example, right now, the S&P 500 is a little bit short of its all-time high. Um, when it goes a little bit higher, It'll be at an all-time high, which is going to be an objective change in conditions. But that objective change in conditions will, I think, generate a lot of headlines about how stocks are at an all-time high, which should improve vibes. But then the question is, is like when that happens, if somebody is like, the stock market's at an all-time high, exactly what share of the internet is going to pile on to me and you and be like, maybe the economy is good for ultra rich billionaires, but millions are suffering. Right. And that's like the interplay between, I think like objective conditions, media coverage, but also ideological motivations that when people build themselves into certain kinds of certain kinds of left-wing views i think have pessimism specifically built into them like i remember getting in so much trouble at work uh in the spring of 2020 when i wanted to write an article about how police departments were killing fewer african americans um, which was just like factually they were, and in my head wasn't like a super contrarian point. I was like, all this activism since Michael Brown, like it's been helping. Um, but I got I got tons of pushback from that because the idea was to say that anything was getting better was undermining the people who 
who were pushing for change. And I think like you, Biden has like really run aground on that, on the economy, labor market, wages type stuff. But it reflects like how progressives want to talk about race, how they want to talk about climate, how they want to talk about everything. And I think to, to Brian's question, like, I, I think you can't just have like one-off social media Twitter warriors doing this. Like leaders need to think about like, what is the ideology that we are projecting and in, like fairness to, and in doers. fairness to the whole progressive faction, like the leaders of that faction would maybe Bernie Sanders accepted because he has this weird sort of demagogic. They're trying on. now to pivot. AOC, AOC and, and Elizabeth Warren are like good soldier Democrats in addition to being progressive. But I didn't I didn't I just wanted that to be out there. But, you know, Will, you may have thoughts on what Matt said. And I have like one thing I want to say about the importance of policy. But let's. Well, I was going to I was just going to say, you know, one of the things I mean, a few things. Um, the with regards to, to progressive leaders and liberal leaders, I mean the issue here. I, I think that I think that the, you know there's most people in politics, especially elected officials, understand that you know if things are good, you know, and you're in charge, <laughs> you shouldn't go out there and say things are terrible. I think that you know sort of intuitively, if you're in politics, you probably understand that. But I, I, I think that there is a failure on the part of uh, liberals in particular who want to sort of stand, you know, take a thirty thousand foot view. And and say you know give sort of hand down their analysis you know and then sort of depart the scene. I, I, I think that you know and if you want to change minds on this, if you want to change the culture, if you want to change the sort the vibe, um, you really need to just hammer away. I mean, this is this is the hard part. It's not exciting. It's not interesting. You're making the same argument one thousand times over with people who are making the same wrong argument back to you. And you just, but you, without, if you don't do that, if you're not just hammering away, like what will happen is that these, these sort of group dynamics, the social dynamics that, that currently exist, the negative, you know, pessimism, the doomerism, if you want to call it that, will reassert itself. And so I, I think that this is really where we fall down a little bit. You'll see, you know, someone will say, well, Biden should say something good about the economy. So Biden goes out there and gives a speech and says something good about the economy. You know, the country does not, you know, change on a dime. And then they say, well, it didn't work. Well, so you never, you don't know if it works until you try, until you hammer away for a year. Um, and so I think that th this is just something that, that liberals really struggle with. And a lot of times, um, you know, frankly, I would say elite liberals struggle with the most because they find it kind of boring. They find it kind of grinding, which it certainly, I mean, my experience is just a rando is, is that it certainly is. <laughs> I've actually, I've actually talked to members of Congress about this basic question, which is like, they want to deal with popularity issues by turning the policy dials because that's interesting to them and the like being relentlessly on message and hyper-partisan in their rhetoric um and i would say and, boring it's important and, that, and like beneath them in some sense on message i mean there's, there's an obsession with finding the right message with finding the exact right line with finding the exact right policy i don't really think that these details matter i mean this is clear you know when someone out there thinks we're in a depression it doesn't matter whether or not you're saying using the precise, you know, message tested line. So I, I, say, we're not, we're not. Yes. In depression. So, Things but so, but so I, I, I agree with that, but I, I think that you guys need to pay closer attention to your own observations about social dynamics, right? Because it starts, somebody is like, we're in a new great depression. And then I'm like, we're, that's not the case. Like that, that, that's not true. And then why does it flip, right? So it flips to 
oh, but look at all these people who are poor, right? And then you find yourself doing the like pointy headed detail guy thing and being like, it's true that there's poverty, but in fact, there was also poverty in 2019 and the level hasn't really changed, yada, 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 yada. But but, why, but, I think- but the question, because the question of vibes and social dynamics, right, is that there's a strong overarching norm in progressive spaces, which is that you are always supposed to defer to the kind of the most vulnerable, right? And, and this speaks in some ways to the strengths of progressive politics as a value system that like we progressives, like we're empathetic, we care about people, et cetera, et cetera. But the way that this tends to go, because I saw it with you, Will, right? Like somebody came back to you be like, well, maybe the reason people think we're in a Great Depression is that the rate of homelessness increased slightly last year. And then you had to be like, I, I don't think that that's actually what is bothering people. Like there's not that many homeless people. People don't care that much. But then you've like stepped out of the the the, the good progressive circle. What? You don't care about the homeless, right? And And there's this kind of deep question, which I agree with you, it doesn't relate to the policy details. It relates to like the big policy themes, which is like, can we just say that what we are trying to do is make things work a little bit better for like average people? By which standard the Biden economy is doing well. It is an easy time to get a job. People have been able to quit. They've been able to get raises. You know, we had inflation, but that's better than mass unemployment. We have conquered inflation. Interest rates are coming down. We got to maybe make some more changes here and there. Biden has these proposals to help you with the prescription drugs, other good stuff. The details don't matter that much. It's like the broad picture of like middle-class living standards rising under competent administration of government. But that's a different big picture theme from we need to avert human extinction, we need to extirpate systemic racism, you know, these other kinds of things, right? In which eventually you find yourself, uh, I I think, like, cut adrift, not from the micro details of left-wing policy, but from the, like, big concepts, right? Because you can't... I'll see people who who like say they agree with you. And it's like, we got to wrestle with the realities of right-wing media. And I'm like, great, like by all means, like let's, let's wrestle. Uh, But then like they themselves are proponents of these like catastrophist accounts of American life. And I just don't, I, I don't think you can, you can be a good vibes movement. I don't think you can effectively contest the information wars. Um, I guess to use uh, uh, Boitler friendly jargon, (laughs) From this kind of like leftist crouch, because the only thing you can do from that perspective is tear people down. But it's like when you govern, you just like you, you're you're stuck with reality, you know, and like you need to be able to tell people like reality is fine. Like this is like the richest country that's ever existed. And like, just Matt, like well, I think happy. you're doing this. You're, I mean, you're I making think the that, case. Go ahead, Will. Well, I was going to say, I think, you know, the homeless increase is actually a great example of how you can sort of navigate this. You know, the correct response, I mean, there isn't a rise in homelessness. Homelessness is, a, is, a, is an increasing problem right now. It's probably related to housing costs and, um, you know, some in, in the sort of recent legal changes. Um, but, but 
for instance, you know, the argument I, the thing I would say with homelessness is, of course, homelessness is a problem. Of course, we can help, you know, we should help these people. And also, we are a prosperous society and we can help these people. I mean, that, you know, we are one of the richest societies in human history, or richest societies on the globe uh, at its richest point in history. Um, we have no excuse for not helping the 70, you know, the new 70,000 homeless people that we have, the tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of population. And so, you know, you can, you can find ways to sort of navigate this, this where you're not, you know, you're not just accepting the most gloom and doom vision of society, but you're also acknowledging there's a problem that needs to be addressed. I, I, I think that, that ultimately, um, you know, I, a lot of the, the thing about the, about vibe, so to speak. Yeah. We're is that it's about the, it's about the tone, a lot of it. Um, and, and, uh, you know, there's just, it's just, there's, it's, it's in some ways it's almost trendy and accepted that your tone will be miserable and negative. And there's, and it, there's a, there's almost a chicken and egg problem here where, where everyone is negative because that's the expectation socially in, in these groups. And then because that's the expectation, you know, there's more negativity and it just, it perpetuates endlessly. And we're seeing this kind of spiral you see the same thing on the right with just anger and, and gloom over, you know, of immigration or over crime or whatever. And, you know, and it's just kind of, it's kind of a similar dynamic on our side. I, I want to like make a few observations by way of winding us down. Cause we've gone a little over. Um, one is that I think Matt is actually um, by implication making the point that you and I will are right. That because policy matters tend to be discordant among progressives that um, democratic leaders should spend more of their time talking about how the orange man's bad because that <laughs> is fairly unifying always. And then, and then, and then you can, um, you kind of like sweep a bunch of the rhetorical disagreements about the state of the economy under the rug. Um, to Matt's point, I like, I, or to, to where I agree with Matt is that like, I, as a vibesologist, I'm also, I'm, I'm not like material reality doesn't matter, right? Like you couldn't vibes your way out of a great depression. You couldn't like mind trick people into thinking that wasn't, you know, bread lines weren't real or like 20% inflation was imaginary or anything like that. It's obviously important. And so to the extent that there are easy levers and toggles and knobs that Biden could, um, could turn to um, improve conditions further, he should do it because it will, it can't hurt. It's the right thing to do just on a, on a moral basis. And people, you know, some people will probably notice and respond well to it. Um, but like the, the party puts a lot of thought into that stuff as it is like, it is a policy first party and not so much a, how do we shape what's entering the brains of humans through the communication systems. Right. <laughs> and, um, and like, I think that there are just like simple things that wouldn't fix the problem because, but like leading by example in talking about like Biden was at, uh, Mother Manual Church on Monday, and he got interrupted by these protesters, people protesting America's support for the war in Gaza, Israel's uh, like bombing of Gaza. And the people in the church got upset with the protesters, but Biden didn't. And he said, like, I respect their passion. And he conceded, I think, that they were right to some extent. He's like, I'm working as hard as I can behind the scenes to bring this to an end. And like, simply acknowledging that the fact that we are doing well now doesn't mean that every problem in the world is addressed. And that's why I'm going to continue. Like we've brought childcare costs down X and I'm going to restore the child tax credit. And 
I'm also going to end the war in Gaza and we're going to address homelessness and we're like, America's a great country that can do all these things is like, it's the policy half of the vibes thing. Like part of it is just getting media to focus on Trump's corruption, say, or the fact that the murder rate is down, not up, even though like there's a vibes thing for you right there. Like crime fell. People don't seem to have noticed. Um, But then treating the progressive critiques, like flipping them in a way that's positive, not like, Oh, well, like we're still on course for extinction, but like climate change is a, is a serious problem. And that's why it's important that I win so that I can continue to make progress on these important issues. And like, okay. But so the, the climate one, I think though, is like, is where this tension comes to the fore, right? Because under Joe Biden's policies, the world is not going to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Like, it just isn't, right? And so if you believe, as mainstream environmental policy groups do, that it is utter catastrophe to fail to meet that target, then, like, Biden is failing catastrophically. I don't think Joe Biden is failing catastrophically, but that's because, like, I will argue not just with, like, the craziest Zoomer TikTok losers, but like with the mainstream the IPCC <laughs> climate journalists that like, I mean, no, I mean, like the IPCC like says what it says, you know, but like with the this kind of like, you know, I, I mean, everybody hates me, uh, you know, for slightly <laughs> different reasons from why everybody hates Will, but like, because- <laughs> Everyone likes me. I'm, I'm well-respected on both sides. No, but like, you know, because this kind of contentiousness makes you- enemies and, and and things like that. But it's like, you know, I, I think I, I, so I agree with what you said, Brian, like those would be good things, but it's like the, the people who fund progressive politics and, and leadership institutions, like I, I wish that they would like, you know, excise crisis, right? Because of the stuff Will was pointing out, right? Like negativity just tends to be more viral. You know, everybody has incentives, sort of inherent incentives to promulgate negativity and doomerism. And elites need to create counter incentives to get people doing things, right? Like Fox could have been running segments nonstop during Trump's administration about how church attendance continues to fall. The out of wedlock birth rate is soaring. American society is collapsing. But like they didn't, right? They channeled their negativity very specifically into this like border caravan stuff because they because they they had like a specific theory about this. I don't think that's they do a lot of border stuff, things that are advantageous to but they but they will talk about these problems of like the secularization of society and blah blah blah. They will Say and that's why it's important to keep right wingers in power because we're a check on the degeneracy of the left. And yeah, I mean, like, to an extent, what I'm saying but, is the same thing, right. essentially in reverse. Is like climate change continues to be a problem. That's why it's super important to keep Republicans. Right. It just, but it just like it, it matters how you phrase the problem because I like I agree. Right. It's like pollution is undesirable, and that's why it's important to elect people who try to reduce it. Like yes, but like if. If you judge it by this like tipping point to extinction, right? Then like we're not there, right? Or like racism is bad. 
That's why it's good that Joe Biden's civil rights division is like bringing anti-discrimination lawsuits, whereas Trump is going to like either have them do nothing or he's going to have them just advocate on behalf of religious fundamentalists who want to get rid of your birth control. Like that's all great, right? Versus like American society is like rotten to its core. And then it's like, well, Biden is not going to pull out the rotten core of American society <laughs> and replace it with something. Now, Biden's own speeches, I think, are actually very good about this, about like the soul of America and, and all these kinds of things. I mean, we started, Brian and I, just talking about how like one of the best things about Biden's January 6th speech was just like that it existed. You know, like, like he gave a big speech and a lot of people paid attention to it because it had a good news hook. And like, I think we just like, we need more Joe Biden, but we also need more people, you know, living the good vibes ethos that like, I think it, I, I think it relates to these big picture concepts. And like, you have to be willing to, in your heart, like be a little bit patriotic in order to generate good vibes. I, I like that point. And I want, Will, like, I want you to have the, like the last word for the whole conversation. So like, yeah. So Do you like, hate America? To everything. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, what I would say is that, you know, for instance, you're talking about climate change and I am, I am a much more pessimistic about climate change. You are, I do think it's a crisis. I do think it's scary. Um, this is specifically why it's very important to me that Joe Biden win the election because it gets a lot scarier if if Republicans are in charge. I don't think that that there is necessarily you know we have to choose between you know optimism or pessimism. I think that we you can you know that there are there are cases for both in different circumstances. What I would say is important though is is, is an acknowledgement that politics is a social process. That politics is 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 governed by these social dynamics by these group dynamics um that that they're not it's not all just a reflection of the physical material reality of the economy or the world that there are these these ideas can bubble up and they and even though you know they don't have they're almost like a, a real physical thing that they that they steer uh, public opinion they can they exist and then they're replaced by new ideas and democrats just and liberals often just don't think about this they don't want to think about this they don't want to think about how the ideas form they don't want to think about the institutions that support them and without thinking about that you end up in a situation like we are today these absurd situations where you have something on the ground you have an economy that is by most measures prospering and yet everyone is miserable and it's really difficult to win elections or succeed in politics if if these things are happening and you just have no control over it so we really just want more than anything i want liberals and democrats and progressives to think about how this happens to think about the dynamics here which are complicated they're not simple and think about ways to alter them um and Biden you know should and eminent just, domain twitter and hand it to george soros one hundred percent. I mean, honestly, I don't. One of the biggest examples of this is how they just how Democrats just sort of shrugged when Twitter went over to you know an enemy of theirs, and suddenly you've lost this sort of control of this sort of pillar of you know public discussion, and it's like that has effects, and yet no one wants to think about it. So I just want people really to think about this, and then you know from there, many you know there's there's lots of ideas out there um, that we can we can you know work at, but but you have to start with accepting that this is a thing. I like that optimistic ending point. Will, I'm really glad that you agreed to do this. I thought it was a great conversation. Um, and maybe either before the election or after we can have you back and see how the vibes evolve. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Well, it was great being here. Uh, you guys have a good day. 
That's all the time we have for this week, um, but you can do your part to change the incentives towards good vibes uh, by subscribing to Politics, um, and you can do that by going to politics with an X, dot FM. Uh, this episode, like all episodes, is produced by Mike Shane. Thanks.